This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. We're starting a brand new series for the summer. We'll take us all the way through the summer called A Heroic Summer. And we're going to be looking in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you want to find that spot in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, if you want to use one of the Bibles in the chairs, you find that real quickly on page 1106. I remember underdog. How many remember underdog? All right, all the oldies. All right. (laughs) The kids are going, who is that? He was the real deal hero. We all do need a hero. We all need someone to inspire us to do great things, someone we look up to. And God in Hebrews 11 has given us an entire list of heroes, heroes of the faith. And so starting today and all through August, we're going to be going verse by verse, story by story through this, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, is it not? When you think of the great chapters in the Bible, you come up with Genesis 1, you come up with with Psalm 23 and 1 Corinthians 13 and John chapter 3. And, and I think, I hope that you think of Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if that's new for you, that's great news because you're going you're gonna to learn a lot of great things, I hope, this summer. Uh, so we're going to go through this great chapter, see if we can't learn just what faith is and what it means and how we're to live it out as God's people. It tells a story in this chapter of heroic men and women. They were heroic because of their faith. They were heroic because of their vision. They had 2020 vision and they endured shame and suffering rather than when the opportunities came, although they weren't perfect about this by any stretch, but the incidences we'll read about, they were not ashamed of their faith and, and uh, they, would, they would endure shame and suffering rather than denounce it. So some of you love verse-by-verse teaching. I do as well, so you're going to love this summer. As we've done the past few summers, uh, I'm going to be joined in teaching uh, this series by our able team of pastors, so they'll be popping up through the summer. Hebrews 11 is an interesting chapter because especially in this letter to Jewish Christians, it is a hinge chapter. Right? You know what a hinge does, opens and closes, and it, it is a hinge chapter to these first century Jewish believers. The first 10 chapters of Hebrews portray the deity, the humanity, the superiority of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. He is God, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and at the same time, he is man. And the supremacy and sufficiency of of Jesus and his work and what he did when he came to be our Savior and our great high priest. There is no one greater. Hebrews chapter 10 is telling these Jewish believers, no one greater, not even Abraham, not even Moses. Jesus is superior. There's none more able than Christ to meet every need that we have, including our need for salvation. So then the writer uses these great heroes of the Old Testament. And you think, you're thinking people, why would he go just to the Old Testament? Because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. He goes to the Old Testament because he's writing to who? Jews. They know the Old Testament, don't they? So he goes to all these Old Testament heroes of the faith to show first century Jewish believers and to show us today, 2,000 years ago, what faith in Christ, how it works in real life. These Old Testament stories of faith 
as you'll notice as we go through it, if you, you know your Bible very well, you'll know, notice that they're told chronologically, which means they start from the beginning and go work through toward the end. They don't jump around. Chronologically, and it starts today with, and we just sang about it in a couple songs, creation. It starts with creation. The emphasis here in Hebrews 11 is not on the source of our faith, but is on the practice in real life. There is practical stuff in this chapter, and that's what we, I hope that we dig out. Faith here is not just a matter of belief. It's so easy to say, sure, I believe in God, but it's a matter of behavior that's based upon that belief. Because I believe in God, this is how I will live. These are the decisions I will make. These are the things I will do and will not do. It's not Please hear me now. It's not, can I somehow drum up enough faith to believe God's word? I hear that from people a lot. I just don't have enough faith. But will I live by the faith God has given me? Now, let me pause for just a second. We just finished a series last Sunday. Bernie, Bernie wrapped it up so well. We're talking about wisdom in our finances. We did a series called Living Wisely, and we pulled some things out from the Proverbs and talked about living wisely in our families, living wisely in our finances, living wisely in our friendships. And, 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 and if, I, if I could honestly say after the many, many years that I've been a Christian, um, almost 50 years as a Christian, and then uh, the many, many years I've been pastoring, 27 years in this church alone, here's, well, let me just give you something that I've observed after all these years. If there are two things that separate those who survive as Christians and those who do not, if there were two things, if I could say, what are the two things that make the difference between those who excel as believers in Jesus, those who become fully devoted followers of Christ, those who pursue him with passion, and those who don't. You know the old saying, if you can't run with the dog, stay under the porch. What's the difference between those who, who run and those who stay under the porch? I would say it's two things that they have not learned and they will not put into practice. One is wisdom. And they make poor choices about things. One is wisdom. The other is faith. Not trusting God to do what he says he'll pro he promised that he would do. Those two things, wisdom and faith. Now, if you, have, if you missed that series, go back to our podcast. You can find it online. You can watch. You can listen. And I'd encourage you to do that. Um, so here we are in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, we are not, I'm going to just take a guess and say most of us in this room are not Jews. Thank you for chuckling. Most of us in this room are not Jews. I'm just going to take a guess. Now, some of you probably maybe have some Jewish background, and maybe you are, but most of us are not. So you might be a fairly new Christian. You might not have much, of, or if any, knowledge of the Old Testament. So that's why we're here, to study faith from this chapter and to find out why these examples are so valuable. First point in your notes is this. We all live real life. Every person in this room lives real life. Every person in this room has our ups and our downs. Every person in this room experiences the greatest joys, and every person in this room will experience, if you have not already, great tragedy and great crisis in your life. Is that true or not? 
We all live real life. There's some people who look at me standing up here. You go back to your home church, if you're a guest, and you see your pastor standing up front, and you think, he doesn't live real life. He doesn't understand. He doesn't go through trials and challenges. And let me say to you, baloney. All right? We all live real life. You know, as Christians, we aren't immune from cancer, are we? We're not immune from natural disasters. We're not immune as Christians from bankruptcy. We're not immune as Christians from marital struggles. We're not immune as Christians from cantankerous neighbors. Now, my neighbor, I love my neighbors, and they are sweet people. But my neighbor must have yesterday purchased a brand new riding lawnmower. And how do you know that, Rick? Because at 6.40 this morning... I'm going to have a talk with my neighbor, Lynn. At 6.30 this morning, I heard an engine crank up, a motor crank up, and I thought, what in the world? And when I left to come here, I left my house at about, about 20 minutes later. As I pulled out the driveway, there she was on this shiny new lawnmower. And I thought, it's like a kid on Christmas morning. You know, I can't wait to play. <laughs> we all live real, real life. Would it be great? If we were immune from all of those things. But if we were immune to real life, then what need would we have of faith? You get that? If we were immune to all the bad things that can happen, why in the world would we need God? Why in the world would we need faith? And we would have no way to demonstrate if it was not for faith. What, how would we demonstrate to our unbelieving world around us what a wonderful, caring, providing God we have? How would we do that? And if the world doesn't see that through us in times of real life happening and they see our faith coming out and being lived out and, and seeing us go through things and they wonder, how did you endure that? If they don't see that in us, how will they ever see Christ? Here's what I've observed. Faith is so important to us. We've adopted, and here's why. My observation is this, most Christians today in 2018 struggle with faith and struggle with wisdom too. And why is that? Because we've adopted the values and worldview of the non-Christian world And we try with one hand, I'm going to live for Jesus, and then with the other hand, we're holding on to the world outside of Christ and what it tells us to do and how it tells us to think and consequently how it wants us to live. And we try to do both, and we can't. You know, we cannot be the middle of the rope in the tug of war. Because if we are, you know what we're going to do. We're going to let go with one hand or the other. The result that I see too often is defeated Christian lives and train wrecked Christian homes. We all live real life. And we need this kind of faith to survive and thrive. Look with me at verses 1 and 2, Hebrews chapter 11. The writer gets to this spot and he says, Now, after I've told you all about Jesus and how superior and how supreme and how wonderful he is, <clears throat> How he has provided everything that the Old Testament could not provide, that all the sacrifices, all the laws could not provide. He says, now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For our ancestors, 
He was a Jewish man that wrote this. Our ancestors won God's approval by it. By what? By faith. Our ancestors. Faith is about two things. Faith is about what we hope for, and faith is about what we can't see. Now, let me stop and say this. Can non-Christians have faith? Oh, absolutely. They can have faith. They hope for things that they haven't seen yet. They hope for things like, I'm hoping for a raise at work. I'm hoping for that promotion. They know they're doing well at the job, and they're trusting in that performance to get them a promotion. Is that faith? Sure it is. But it's not Christian faith. It's not faith in God's promise. It's faith in what they're doing, and it's faith that my employer is taking notice, and I'm hoping that because I'm believing my boss is noticing the good job I'm going to do that I'm going to get a promotion. That is faith. But it's not the faith we're talking about here in Hebrews 11. That's not faith in God's promise. So what is faith? Three things I want you to, three or four things I want you to jot down. Faith is conviction that what is promised is reality. It's conviction. Conviction is what I know deep down in my soul is real. That's why he says faith is reality. It's conviction that what God has promised is going to happen. It's believing that it is real even though it hasn't happened yet. Faith is secondly, hope in God's promise. Hope in God's promise. Now, I'm going to nail some of you this morning with some things, okay? So, Because you might say, oh, I like that, I like that. Some of the things I'm going to say this morning are going to shatter some of you a little bit. I, I bet you anything. It's hope in God's promise. Then thirdly, faith, Christian faith is convinced about the things for which we hope, things which God has promised that we will obtain in the future. For example, if you've been a Christian very long and you've had some study and you've had some teaching, you're waiting for something if you're a Christian. You're waiting for something that the Bible calls in one place calls the blessed hope. Blessed hope of what? The blessed hope of Christ's return. Are you hoping for that? That's part of faith, isn't it? Hasn't happened yet. We've been waiting for 2,000 years. We hope the Bible tells us we hope in the resurrection of the dead. It's a Listen, it's a promise from God. Jesus promised it in Luke 14, verses 13 and 14. He said, on the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, who are maimed, lame, or blind. He said, don't invite all the rich people in your community. Invite those that have nothing. Invite the marginalized, and you'll be blessed. Why? Because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid when at the resurrection of the righteous at the judgment seat of Christ when you're rewarded for the things that you've done as you've lived out your christian life you'll be re- that's hope is it not and that was promised by jesus so i have faith in the resurrection of the righteous i have hope in that day paul wrote in romans 8:24 and 25 now in this hope we were saved yet hope that is seen is not hope Right? Because who hopes for what he sees? My mom always used to talk about one day my ship will come in. <laughs> I, I don't see it. <laughs> 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. So faith is confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Trustworthiness of God, why is it confidence in his trustworthiness? Because we're counting on something that he has promised us. And we say, we believe that's going to happen. I'm confident. It's the belief, and that's what faith is, is belief. It's the belief that if God said it, that settles it. But how many times? Listen, here's where some of you are going to get, I'm messing with your mind now. How many times have we heard others say to someone else, and maybe we've said these words to someone else, and and they're going through something or going through a trial or they're going they're looking for a new job or they're, whatever it might be, and we say to them, oh, well, just believe God. Just trust God for something he has not promised. Do you hear what I said? Does God promise you're going to be healed from that cancer? Can you find that in the Scripture? I don't think you can. Now, some people would argue with me, but I would argue back, you know, I'll never get to heaven unless I die. Get that? Unless there's a rapture that happens first, I got to die somehow. Not at me if you agree. I might not like how I have to die, but uh, you know, has God prompt? No, God will just believe God. I'm just. Some people will say I'm just trusting God. You know, my wife and I right now have a, a property for sale here in the Outer Banks. And people that came there yesterday, it's a vacation home, and people came and said to me yesterday, well, are you, are you, they came to look at it. I was excited to see them. A realtor brought them to look at the house. And they asked me, they said, are you, are you the owner? And I said, I am today. <laughs> but you could be tomorrow. <laughs> we have this house that, that, that we've just recently put up for sale, and, and, uh, and, and we, we even pray that it will sell. But there's no promise from God that it will ever sell. I haven't found that in the Word. There's no promise for God that we'll get the price that we've put on it. In fact, I kind of imagine somebody's going to talk us down a little bit on that. But there's no promise from God on that. So for us to say, for Gail and I to say, we're trusting God to sell that house is putting something on him that he's not promised me. Am I messing with your mind a little bit right now? Grunt. Okay. Now, sure, we can believe that God can find the right buyer at the right time, and he can. But is God obligated to do that? No. But he has promised, you know, one thing he has promised us is to provide our daily bread, has he not? I can depend on that. Faith is confident in unseen things, assured that they are or will become a reality. One might even say the unseen things of which we are assured in Scripture are the ultimate reality. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes and says, For our momentary light affliction, Paul, who is being persecuted everywhere he goes just about, beaten and thrown in jail and cursed and all those things that happened to him. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. We do not focus then on what is seen, 
That's our problem. We focus on what we can see. We do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8. Therefore, we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, that we're all there right now, all right, every single one of us, we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. In other words, we're not there with him in heaven, in eternity. For we walk, how church? By and not by. Easier said than done, isn't it? Yet, he says, we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and home with the Lord. One day we'll be glad to be gone. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. We just sang that song. So that's a beautiful song we did a little few moments ago about how God, just with his words, spoke the universe into existence. Galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies. That's what Hebrews 11.3 says. So the next point in your notes says that faith provides us with the only factual account of creation. You probably know Genesis 1.1. It's the foundation of everything that follows. Let me say that again. Genesis 1.1 is the foundation of everything that follows. How much follows in the Bible, Genesis 1.1? Somebody tell me. <laughs> all of it. <laughs> Rick, you're a dummy. No, I'm just trying to make a point. It all follows this verse, this statement. So if you don't get this, Genesis 1.1, it's reasonable to assume you don't get anything else that God says or God has done. You say, well, I don't believe that. Okay, well, then you're not going to believe the rest of it. Say it with me. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the only factual account that we have of creation. The only one who was there to give witness to the creation was the creator. Do you understand that? He's the only one, and he said... I did it. So Genesis 1, in that chapter, he tells us how it happened. And without faith, the creation as recorded in the Bible is hard to swallow. Some of you are having a hard time with it right now. I mean, it's right there. I know it says that in the Bible, but I just... And not so much because science, and, and here's the deal with science. Science has to be able to recreate something in a laboratory. It can't recreate creation, can it? That's impossible. It's not so much because science can't recreate it creation in a laboratory, but because the Bible dares to say that from nothing, simply by his will and by his word, God brought the universe into being. See, the issue with believing in God creating the heavens and the earth is trying to figure out the infinite God with our, with our finite, limited understanding. That's the issue. You know, people get wrapped their, try to wrap their brain around God and eternity and that God always has been. And they wonder, well, when did he get his start? He didn't. He's always been. We, we, we wrestle with that. Why? Because we're finite. We have a start. Everybody here, no doubt, could tell me your birthday. 
You know when that was. Why? Because you were there. And other people were as well, and they wrote it down on a piece of paper, and somebody celebrated that for you your whole life. Creation's not that way. We, all we have, listen to me, all we have is Genesis 1-1, but that should be enough if we're people of faith. While there's much credible science that says God did create everything, to accept it requires faith in the unseen, because we didn't see it happen. In fact, we've never seen the one who did it, but we believe it. Perhaps you've heard of George Mueller. You ever hear of George Mueller? I'm thinking about inviting him to come and preach at the end of the series. Now, the only ones who didn't laugh are Nags Head Church folks who know Doug Whitley, because he does George Mueller. He's been dead for over 100 years. It looks like he was close to it there. George Mueller was a pastor in the 19th century England who made God's promises real by faith and proved to everyone around him in a very visible way the reality of the invisible God. His testimony is amazing. In fact, I've included in your notes uh, some some links for you to go and visit and kind of just get familiar with his story. He literally gave away all of his money and his possessions. And by faith, he founded an orphanage. He looked around, and we have pictures of the buildings that they still exist. He looked around, and he saw all these children working in the factories and living in the streets, and they had nowhere to go. And he, he, his heart went out to them. and He began this orphanage that grew to 2,000 children who needed food and clothing and shelter every day. Now, Mueller had no savings accounts. He refused to make the needs of the ministry known even to potential donors. He never went out and beat the doors and banged on the doors and made phone calls. He wasn't, didn't have any tele, telemarketers. <laughs> he refused to make the needs known even to those that maybe could have given. He wanted, why not? Because he wanted to prove to the world that there is reality when you deal with the living God. He said, let's watch what God can do. saw over 50,000 specific answers to prayer in his lifetime. 50,000. You say, how could he say that? How is that possible? And you know what the answer to that is? Because he wrote every one of them down. That must have been some prayer journal that he had. 50,000 prayers answered. He was an amazing man, wasn't he? But a prayer journal. On May 18, 1837, soon after the start of his first orphanage, there were 64 children under the care of George Mueller. Just 64. It would grow to thousands. In fact, I think by the end of his life, there have been 10,000 different children in his orphanages. And they were in the heart of the city of Bristol. I'm fascinated by that. I want to go to Bristol, England, and I want to see several things there. That's where my Lawrenson ancestors came to America from. So I want to go there and visit 
find some things about them, but George Mueller was there. Some of our elders, so was Robert Chapman at the same time. What a, what a city that must have been in the 1800s during the reign of Queen Victoria. The story is told by one of the orphan girls present who was there at the time of a day, and this is early on in the life of their orphanage, of the day when all the children were led into the dining room for breakfast. They sat down at the dining room table, but there was absolutely no food in the house. I mean, he looked the night before, what am I going to feed the kids for breakfast? And there was nothing. Nevertheless, Mueller sat the the children at the table, which had been laid with all the crockery and cutlery and everything they needed to eat, the plates, the silverware, the pitchers for the milk, but there was no milk. There was no bread. They sat down at the table for breakfast with no food. And I'm sure there might have been some puzzled looks among the children as they did this because nothing was there laid out for them to eat. But Mueller had them sit down at the table ready to eat because Mueller was confident that God would provide. They gave thanks. Thank you, God, for the food we're about to eat. As they prayed, there was a knock at the door. Mueller opened the door And the community baker was standing there with baskets of fresh bread. And he said, I couldn't get to sleep last night. It was like God woke me up in the middle of the night and told me to go and bake bread for the orphans. So here I am. And as he pulled away, Mueller standing there and watching the baker drive away and thanking God for him. Here comes a wagon pulled by a horse with the milkman. And he said to him, right outside your orphanage, right there down the street, uh, my wheel fell off my cart and I can't deliver my milk and I don't have time to get it to where I need to get it in time. Of course, there was no refrigeration back in those days. And he said, if I leave it unattended, the milk on board will either spoil or be stolen. So can can you all use the milk? He would rather give it to George Mueller. So the children had breakfast, proving to them that God works in mysterious ways, does he not? He wrote these words. It's the very time for faith to work when sight ceases. The greater the difficulties, how many of you are going through a difficult time in life right now? The greater the difficulties, the easier for faith. As long as there remain certain natural prospects, in other words, I know how this is going to be fixed. I know how this is going to be taken care of. I know the check's in the mail, whatever we might say. As long as there remain certain natural prospects, faith does not get on even as easily, if I may say so, as when all natural prospects fail. In other words, when we're at the end of the rope, 
and there's nowhere else to go and nothing else that can be done. We cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's totally dark. He said that's when faith can do its work in what God has promised. Now, did God promise? Again, we go back to what you said. God doesn't promise so, so many things, but God does with the story of Mueller and his orphans. He does promise us our daily bread, does he not? Give us this day. See, what we want to do is give, God, give me enough to fill up my freezer, my refrigerator, my cupboards, and, and everything, and then I'll be satisfied. God says, I'll take care of you day by day by day. Now, likely you're here today, gathered with us this morning, because you are either a person of faith or you're someone seeking to find faith, and I'm glad you're here. The greatest story of faith is one we can all experience, by the way. The greatest story of faith is to believe that God sent his son Jesus to the world to live a sinless life and to die a death on a cross in my place, in your place, so that just by believing in him and what he did, we can be reconciled, reconnected with God, having our sins forgiven. Now, let me say to you, how can you say that, Rick? Because that's his promise. I love John 3.16, don't you? God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes on him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Is that a promise? That's where faith begins. By trusting in what Jesus has done. That's his promise. Now, as I told you, I've been a Christian. It was 1966, so I, I said almost 50 years ago. It's been more than 50 years, hasn't it? My, how time flies when you're getting old. Now, 52 years ago, this 10-year-old boy heard this promise of God. I, I never saw Jesus. I've never, I didn't see the cross. I wasn't there. Never heard his words from his mouth. Did not see the resurrection. I haven't seen heaven. But he has promised eternal life to all of those who come to God through Christ. That's his promise. And let me say to you, if you have never accepted that promise, and maybe you've been to church your whole life, maybe this is the first time in a long time or could be the first time ever, that's his promise to you. If you'll come to him, come to God through Jesus Christ and by faith in him and him alone, he gives us everlasting life. He gives us forgiveness of sin. And he wants you to respond to that. We're going to this morning, we do this, try to do this at least once a month, observe something that Christians have been doing together since the very first church. God commanded us to remember him in communion. And so we're going to pass out two different kinds of trays. One has little pieces of bread. One has little cups of juice. We're going to pass those out in just a few moments um, and, and, and ask God to use those. They don't make us Christians. Band, you can come on up. Not to make us Christians, but to help us to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. Now, if you have not yet accepted him as Savior, let me encourage you not to participate in this other than by watching and listening. 
Don't eat the bread. Don't drink from the cup because this is for those who have. It's for us to go back and remember what Jesus has done. But if you would like to right now say, but I, I have not yet, but I would like to right now accept Jesus as my Savior, then I say by all means, right now where you sit, and it's just that simple, Jesus Christ, I may not know all the answers, I don't understand it all, but you promised me everlasting life if I would believe totally in you for my eternal salvation. He promises he gives it to you. I'm going to have a word of prayer. And then, gentlemen, if you'll come forward and, and distribute these. Father, I thank you for your creation, uh, that you did it by just speaking a word. It's pretty amazing. I thank you, Father, that you put this on us to trust in you. And that you've never failed. You've never let us down. I thank you for the cross, for the sacrifice your son Jesus made there. Would you today, whatever we're going through in life, because we all deal with real life, whatever it is right now, uh, Father, would you today help us to find out what your promises are in your word and cling to them? And know that if all else falls around me, I still have you. And that's what really matters. Thank you for George Mueller, for his example, for his testimony. What an amazing man. I can't wait to meet him. I want to hear his stories. But as we go through this chapter in the weeks to come, and we hear the stories of, uh, of all these different Old Testament heroes. May they enlarge our faith as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.